Be godly or ungodly, for there's no third way to live. Psalm chapter one. You know, our modern world offers us nearly, nearly unlimited options, right? Need a car? You can, you can have it delivered to your house before the pizza man gets there. You want a pair of shoelaces? You know, your Amazon drone overlords can drop it off in the next 20 minutes. You want to watch a movie? There's, there's one million bad ones on, on Netflix. Historically, humans were limited by their options. A, a small example of this, 100 years ago, uh, believe it or not, there were no TVs. I, know, I don't know what anybody did in that time, right? Uh, in the mid-1970s, a little bit later, right, uh, there were only three channels on TV. And, and of those three channels, they didn't even stream content 24-7. And, and you had no remote, right? You, you had to get up and exercise to get to the TV. Like, this is, this is how I know... This is how I know my parents' generation had it harder than mine. Uh, historically, humans have had far, far fewer options when it came to their breakfast cereals, their bachelor degrees, uh, and how to make money. Presently, we have over 1,700 television channels. That, that's a 56,000% increase in less than 50 years. You say, that's, that's not very impressive. Uh, I don't watch TV. It's like, that's, that's fine, right? I'm trying to get our heads wrapped around uh, how limited our options were historically to how seemingly unlimited they are presently. In 1993, the internet was made open to the public through the release of the World Wide Web. And, and in less than 30 years since its inception, there's more data created every single minute than, than any one of us could read in our lifetime. A Forbes article from, from May of 2018 reported that every minute, these are just some, some of them, I won't go through all of them, 16 million text messages are sent, there's 600 new page edits to Wikipedia, 156 million emails are sent, every minute there are 103 million spam emails sent, there are 154,000 calls made on Skype, Snapchat users share 527,000 photos, Users watch 4 million YouTube videos. Almost half a million tweets are sent to Twitter. And Instagram users post 46,000 photos every, every minute. Just un, unreal. I, I can't even fathom that. Presently, we have long passed the threshold of being limited by our options. We have now entered an age where, where we are not limited by our options. Rather, we are now limited by our own capacity to make an, an option and make a choice in that option. But we shouldn't let the endless supply of options tempt us to think or believe that there are endless ways or paths of life. We have only two courses of life we can follow. You can take a different way home, but you cannot chart a whole new way of life. Book one, chapter one of the Psalms wisely sets limits on our choices. Ancient readers have balked at this idea. Modern, modern readers have dared to mock it. But in the end, no third way remains. There's no third way. Psalm 1 gives us two ways. One heading toward blessings and life. The other toward curses and death. Hundreds of years before this psalm was written, Moses submitted these two ways to millions of Israelites. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, he says this, I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Choose life so that you and your descendants may live loving the Lord your God and obeying him. Uh, with no little grandeur, Warren Wearsby says the following. He says, Bible history seems to be built around the concept of two men, two ways, the Adam and the last Adam, Cain and Abel, Ishmael and Isaac, Esau and Jacob, David and Saul, 
And Bible history culminates in what? Christ, Antichrist. Two men, two ways, two destinies. There's no third way. Uh, a naive impression of Psalms then might conclude that it, that it only offers simple platitudes or, or mere moral guidance. Like, like, this is good and this is bad. Stop this, start that. Uh, but for those of us who have read the Psalms or really have let the Psalms read us, we, we know that nothing could be further from the truth. The Psalter is as real as it gets. It doesn't seek to tranquilize us into, into cozy belief or mere sentimentality. It doesn't hold back punches. Like, like a broken Job, the Psalms wrestle with God. My God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Like, like an unrecognizable, malformed Jesus on the judgment tree, the Psalms cry out in deep anguish, my God, my God, why, why have you forsaken me? Dr. Williams was right. He said this, the Psalter is a bloody book for a bloody world. Martin Luther said that everyone in whatever state he is finds words in the Psalms that fit his case exactly as though they are put there for his sake alone. Augustine prayed, how my love for you, God, was kindled by the Psalms. How I burned to recite them were it possible throughout the whole world as an antidote for the pride of humanity. John Calvin said of the Psalter, I'm in the habit of calling this book, he says, the anatomy of all parts of the soul. For the Psalms mirror any and every affection or emotion we could possibly find in ourselves. He says this, the Psalms draw each of us to the examination of himself in order that none of the many sufferings we experience, many of the vices with which we abound may remain concealed. Uh, if, if anything, the, the 150 Psalms are more real and revealing of who we are than we might wish them to be. It's a dangerous venture into the Psalms. Now, before we look further into Psalm 1, let's, let's step back to look at the whole Psalter so that when we return to Psalm 1, we know where we are headed and why. Now, when Jesus and the apostles, when they read the Psalms in the Greek, it, it was separated into five books, just like your Bible separates them into five books. Tradition has it that these five books uh, parallel or, or perhaps imitate the five books of Moses in poetic form, though we do not know for certain. Uh, but, but we can say this with certainty. Given a close reading, most readers would be able to trace where one book in the Psalms ends and one begins. We, we see each book close with a specific form of praise to God, what we call a doxology, and then an amen. Sometimes there's a double amen. Uh, book five ends with Psalm 150, where, where the whole psalm is a form of praise. It's, it's a doxology. Now, Psalm 1 and 2 are traditionally understood as introductory psalms to the whole Psalter. That is, they lay its foundation and they state its purpose. Psalm 1 and 2 show us that the main purpose of the psalms is this. Psalms exist to teach our minds and our affections to highly prize God's instruction and God's Messiah. Uh, consider the following. Where, where most of the psalms are addressed directly to God, Psalm 1 and 2 are not. Instead, they are directed at us, the reader. Psalm 1 describes the ideal righteous man who refuses sin, who delights in God's law or Torah. Psalm 2 describes Israel's anointed king, who is a refuge for his people in the messianic line of David. Psalm 1 opens with, blessed is the man. Psalm 2 closes with, blessed are all who take refuge in him, meaning the Lord's anointed. In Deuteronomy 17, Israel's anointed king was instructed to write out his own copy of the law or the Torah, 
the instruction of the Lord. Alan Harmon argues that Israel's king should have been the one in Israel who exemplified most clearly the character of the righteous, delighting in the law, and being guided by his daily meditation upon it. Psalm 1 and 2 introduced the Psalter to us by emphasizing the Lord's anointed and the Torah, the law. So a main purpose of the Psalms is to teach our minds and our emotions to highly prize God's instruction and God's Messiah. So, so with that, let us turn toward God's instruction in Psalm 1. Psalm 1 is a wisdom psalm. It's like how Ecclesiastes and Proverbs are wisdom books. Other, other wisdom psalms include Psalm 19, Psalm 119, where God's law, his life-giving direction is the most prized of objects. The, the way the psalmist talks about uh, God's law is that it is greater than any material wealth uh, or human power in the world. Jerome compares Psalm 1 to a door of a great building where the Holy Spirit gives the key through which the righteous, the, the blessed, the blessed man, can enter and so learn to be like Christ through acquiring the gift of wisdom. So there's, there's no desire left in Psalm 1 to walk, stand, stand, or sit with the ungodly. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. In the, in the 1600s, John Trapp uh, critiqued philosophers who endlessly debated questions like, what is the good life? How, how do we be happy? Right? He, said, he said this uh, in, in his you know, old English. The psalmist saith more to the point about true happiness in this short psalm than any one of the philosophers or all of them put together. They did but beat the bush. God hath here put the bird into our hands. I, I wish I had harnessed my inner John Trapp during, you know, like in college with some of my classmates. And, and you know, dear sirs, yet again, thou hast beaten around the bush. You know, get thee to the point. Take up and read Psalm 1. A more literal translation of this, of this plural noun, blessed or blessed, would be blessednesses. Uh, but, but Psalm 1, that, you know, the man has blessednesses. It's just, it's just awful hard to say. It doesn't really roll off the tongue. Uh, if you happen to stumble across buried treasure in the next week, um, you, you want to pick up one diamond from the lot and say, yeah, I'm rich. This is great. No, in your, in your heaping handfuls of gold and silver, you would have riches upon riches, right? You'd be so excited about it, you'd make up a new word, richednesses. That's what, you, that's what you are now. Just so the righteous man of Psalm 1 has a hold on blessings upon blessings. The Hebrew for man in the blessed man does not limit itself to one person, but represents the ideal person for believers to emulate. So as we've said, the placement of Psalm 1 and, and Psalm 2, it's, it's intentional. It emphasizes God's law, that's here in Psalm 1, and in God's anointed king, that's Psalm 2. One of the main functions of the king of Israel was to do this. It was to represent the people to God. King Solomon's successes were Israel's successes, just as his failures were Israel's failures. David's successes and failures were Israel's successes and failures, and so on. And we know, we know Christians who represent us now. For the Christ follower, Jesus is our representative king. He is the Lord's anointed who perfectly delighted in the law of God. Unlike David, Solomon, Moses before them, Christ was the only one who lived a sinless life. He represented us by obeying and fulfilling the law. And not just obeying and fulfilling it, but delighting in it perfectly. As the Lord's anointed one, he paid the price to then reconcile God and man through his own 
sacrificial death. Apart from Christ, Adam's failures remain our failures. That's just, that's just the truth. But for those of us who are in Christ, Jesus' successes are now our successes. He is the epitome of the blessed man. And we are called to follow him in the way laid out to us in the Psalms and other scriptures. Uh, so, so like Christ, we are three-dimensionally opposed to God opposers. First, the blessed man doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Uh, recently, we, we watched a, a cartoon with, with our daughter about Noah because, you know, pastor's kids, like they can't watch normal cartoons, right? Um, and, and, and it frames the wicked as only ever hell-bent on destruction and terror. It, it showed the people of the town just being straight-up evil. Uh, they, they're laughing, they're burning down homes, like maybe burning down their own homes. Like there's no rhyme or reason. There's no, they're not trying to make a point. They're just, they're just bad to the bone, right? It, it came across like a, like a kid in a sandbox who just takes his time making like a 651 perfect ratio of like a sand Japan and then just goes Godzilla on the thing, right? It's just, it's just pure chaos. That's how this was coming across. And in reality though, the wicked here should not be understood as, as only ever being as bad as can be, but rather simply as the unbeliever, the ungodly. Hebrew scholar Alan Ross states that the wicked or the ungodly here are unbelievers, people who have no part in the covenant and so remain guilty before God. He goes on to say, some of these people may seem to us to be good people, but as far as God is concerned, they are wicked because they have rejected their creator. They've chosen to live in violation of his laws. And worst of all, worst of all, they have refused his provision of salvation in Jesus Christ. Now consider what ungodly counsel actually, actually looks like. Uh, there, there are some men who, who believe that they are left to fend for themselves. As, as a man, they, they must carry the burden of family or society. And, and where they have remained steady for others, no one will remain steady for them. They must go it alone. They must pull themselves up. They must not expect help for no help will come. Some women believe that they are truly isolated. Perhaps they've, they've just been betrayed too many times and, and they can't get close to anyone anymore. They begin to believe the lie that this world says that they shouldn't ever have to go through that kind of pain again. So they take control of their pain. They isolate. They bury what should not be buried. Ungodly counsel makes it appear as though it is dignified for men to proudly suffer in silence or, or powerful for women to shut others out. But really, it is a refusal to lean into God's provision of salvation. It's an affront to God's counsel. Godly women get help from God and God's people. Godly men know they are weak, but they trust God's word and wait on him. So if you're here and you're not a Christian or you aren't, you aren't sure if you're a Christian or not, the trouble you face with being ungodly is that you're not necessarily aware that you're ungodly. Maybe, maybe this is you. You know something's wrong, right? Something is off. Something is amiss. You're, you're un-something, unfulfilled maybe, but, but ungodly, you're, you're not sure. You might even think of yourself as religious, but you're not aware of any offenses against God. You, you might believe people are, are genuinely good for the most part. You don't believe you were born in sin really and truly, and you certainly aren't convinced that you violated God's commands in a way that, that angers him, that would kindle his wrath. So, so this is the thing. The ungodly aren't fully aware of their wickedness. And that's a, that's a terrifying thought, 
That is a terrifying thought. To not be fully aware that you are sinful in the sight of a holy creator, to only be aware that you have perhaps just let God down, or, or the world has failed you, and that's why you are the way that you are, or, or you have failed yourself. That's, that is not the full picture. When our minds are, are unrenewed by listening to our own counsel, by trusting in the counsel of this world over God's wisdom in his word, we unwittingly walk to where sinners stand. The godly have no desire to stand with sinners. Sinners here refers to those who miss the mark of God's standard. It's a failure on their part, a falling short of God's clearly defined law. One scholar states this, the verb for stand here has more of the sense of take a stand than simply stand still and just hang out. It's take a stand. There's volition and therefore responsibility assumed in this action of standing. Since the early 2000s, Pride Month has been celebrated. Over the years, it's become more socially acceptable for people and businesses to promote gay and lesbian pride. According to this wisdom psalm, this is the natural course of events to those who listen to ungodly counsel. They, they will, whether they intended to originally or not, end up taking a stand with the godless. There might seem to be plenty of happiness there, but, but there is no, there's no divine blessing. There's no third way. We move from walking, then standing, and then down to sitting and mocking. The righteous desire to see scoffers saved. This is, this is our heart's desire. So the Lord's desire. The word sit here means plainly to sit down. <laughs> uh, it can also mean to dwell or to take up permanent residence in a place. A description of this. Both ancient and modern theologians, uh, they, they point out that, that Lot and Lot's experience is actually a lot like how this psalm flows. Uh, it's a literal illustration for, for a poetic statement. Uh, Lot first set up his tent next to godless Sodom. Then he moved into town. Then he came to act as a magistrate, sitting in the gate in the evil town, condoning some sins, condemning others. In the end, Lot was saved, but scarcely so, and only through the mediation of a, of a what? A, a blessed man, Abraham. Scoffers taunt, mock, and ridicule the godly desires of the saints. For, for the mockers, to worship God is just, it's just tribal. <laughs> it's just it's just an ancient practice. To sacrifice time, energy, and resources toward the work of the ministry is wasteful. Mockers play Psalm 1 in reverse and have it say that the godly are the useless ones, right? If I'm, if I'm an unbeliever and I care nothing for the gospel, then I'm going to read Psalm 1 and go, no, I'm not the worthless chaff. You are. <laughs> the worthless chaff getting driven out by the wind is the believer for, for the mocker. So faith family, when you are mocked for believing in Jesus, I submit the following five principles to you. When you are mocked for believing in Jesus, I submit the following five principles to you. When mocked, first, when mocked, humble yourself. Apart from God's grace, you and I would mock. We, we would have stand, or stood there right, with the sinners mocking our Savior. When mocked, humble yourself. When mocked, do not ridicule or look down on sinners, and so become the very scoffer you know you shouldn't mimic. Number two, when mocked, do not ridicule or look down on sinners. Do not become a mocker of sinners. Three, when mocked, realize that the mockers are miserable. The mockers are miserable. In 1640, Sir Richard Baker said this. He said, although the ungodly make a show in the world of being happy, 
yet they of all men are most miserable. John Calvin said nearly the same thing and argued that the psalmist here is making this point, that the one, he, he, he is the one who shows us that no man can be awakened to the fear and service of God and to the study of his law, to delighting in his law, until this, until he is firmly persuaded that the ungodly are miserable. It's an interesting entry point. When mocked, realize the mockers are miserable. Four, when mocked, let them mock. R. Kent Hughes describes a time when George Whitfield, the, the 18th century evangelist, um, he, he was hounded by this group called the, uh, the Hellfire Club. They derided his work and they mocked him. On one occasion, a man named Thorpe was mimicking Whitfield to his friends. He was delivering Whitfield's sermon like to the T. His facial expressions, tone, everything. When he himself was so pierced that he sat down and was converted on the spot. When mocked, let them mock. When mocked, pray genuinely for their souls. Pray that the Holy Spirit will do what the Holy Spirit does, that he would convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment. That the truly blessed Christian is a, is a walk no evil, stand no evil, live no evil kind of a person. And, and as a result, they are blessed in a host of ways. One scholar amplifies for us the benefits of those who are counted blessed. In book one of the Psalter, just book one, mind you, not the other four, just book one of the Psalter, Psalms 1 through 41, we see that blessedness is found in the following. Okay, it's found right here in Psalm 1, right? It, blessedness is found with all who delight themselves in God, trusting that he cares for them. The blessed find refuge in the Messiah. Blessedness is found in divine forgiveness of sins and God's counsel and protection. To be blessed is to be a part of the community of the godly. With the humble who fear the Lord and await his deliverance, we are counted among the blessed. Blessedness is found of all who delight in God's will, who cry out to the Lord in their trouble and confess their sin. To be blessed is to experience God's delight in the godly. Though, though we are troubled and sinful, we persevere in a lifestyle of wisdom. This, this, it's just a striking similarity to Jesus in the Beatitudes, Right? Blessed are those, blessed are those. Uh, it's, almost, it's almost like he read the Psalter or something. Yeah, strange, right? Um, the Christian delights in meditating on God's word. Psalm 1, verse 2, the end of verse 3, it echoes Joshua 1, 8. Joshua 1, 8 says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it for then you will make your way prosperous. It would be easy to read Psalm 1, verse 2, and go, okay, got it. I need to not only do my devotions in the morning, but now I'm going to do them in the evening. I will commit to this, right? I'm among the blessed. I'm going to do this. And you wouldn't be wrong to do that, right? But it misses out on the poetic nature of the Psalms. This is a figure of speech, meaning everything in between morning and evening, now, now, don't go like, okay, got it. All right, I'm, I'm going to not only read my devotions in the morning and in the evening, but I will, I will read on the clock at risk of getting fired from my job. Right? No, no, of, of course not, right? You, you also don't need any kind of degree in biblical Hebrew or ancient Near Eastern Ugaritic poetry in order to grasp this. Look at what the text says. 
On his law, he meditates day and night. Not, not he ceaselessly reads the text. He meditates. He mulls it over in his mind. And it's all too easy for a, for a song, a catchy song, to get stuck or lodged in our minds, right? We might even find ourselves singing it in our head or a little bit under our breath. This is the idea of meditation. We read it with the intention of getting it lodged in our minds. We, we can't help but, but recite it. In the fourth century, Jerome reported that it, that it wasn't uncommon to hear the Psalms sung out in the fields and in the gardens. The word meditate translates to whisper or to mutter, to read in an undertone. Orthodox Jews still, still speak the scriptures in this way. They read the text, they verbally recite it, they meditate on it, they, they mutter it throughout the day. And so, so if we join the word meditate with day and night, the figurative day and night all throughout the day, it indicates that a majority of meditation time, it has to do more with our minds and hearts after our daily Bible reading than during our daily Bible reading. God's blessed people are people who, who pack up and carry God's words in their minds and on their tongues during the day so, so that they work through how to live them out, right? We read the Bible and then we seek to apply it with our lives. And we work that out throughout the, the daily mundaneness of life and the daily madness of life. You know, the, the car won't start, right? It's, it is easy to mutter and grumble under my breath. I wrote these lines and I was like, Lord, please let my car start on Sunday morning because then I'm just going to like grumble and mutter if it doesn't start. This would be bad. Um, but, but if I'm enriching my mind and my heart in the Psalms, I, I pause my grumbling. I catch myself, right? Daniel's great inconvenience, you know, it, it's paused in order to bring my concern to God. And, and at least begin by thanking him, genuinely thanking him for the reminder that life is not about my convenience. A relationship fails. It's easy to replay over and over where it went wrong, where you're most injured. But if you're deepening your roots in the gospel, you're meditating and you experience failure in dating or friendships, you, you naturally cry out to God for help by replaying what over and over again? Not the bad memory, but the, but the Psalms. They're so deep in you. Not because you just, you just have to, right? Not because you just have to, but because you know your true joy and delight is in God. And you know that the, the Psalms actually speak for you better than you can speak for yourself. When, when you're convinced of that, you are going to mutter the Psalms all day long. A terminal diagnosis. You, you don't go it alone, for you are counted among the blessed. You know blessedness is found in the community of the godly. In the mundaneness of life, you've been, you've been wronged at work or at home, you've been slighted. Our hearts are, are just quick to complain in anger. They're quick to complain in anger. But if streams of God's word are just constantly washing over us, then, then like Jesus, we'll be fully convinced, not just saying it, but, but fully convinced in our minds that the best thing to do is to entrust ourselves to God who judges justly. You will know that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God, and you trust that you are counted among the blessed when you confess your sin, when you seek divine forgiveness, as the Psalms teaches us. Now, now whenever God speaks in his word, we are instructed. Whenever God speaks in his word, we are instructed. 
On God's law or instruction, the blessed man meditates day and night. The word for law here is interchangeable with, with any of God's instructions, his good commands. We, and we take this cue interpretively from Jesus, from the Apostle Paul. Jesus refers to the Psalms and the Gospels as law or as God's instruction. Paul does the same thing in Romans 3. He cites multiple Psalms, and the way he refers to it is that it is, it is law. That, that is the law, the Old Testament. God's law and instruction are rehearsed poetically, musically through the Psalms. The authors intend for us to receive and respond to God's instruction in books one through five of the Psalter itself. Now, as a Christian, you might go, hey, listen, I, man, I thought we weren't bound by the law. What, what are you doing? <laughs> why, why did you bring Psalm 1 before us this morning? You're telling me to delight in the law. Well, consider the, the following three statements. Consider the following three statements. And if those don't satisfy you, then I have a, I have a book recommendation uh, for, for you. First, in addition to Jesus and Paul referring to the Psalms as instruction, referring to the, the whole of the scriptures as our instruction, in two other places, the Apostle Paul says that the example of ancient Israel and the entire Old Testament were meant for Christian instruction. 1 Corinthians 11. Now, these things happen to Israel as an example, but they are written down for our instruction. Why? Well, that's, he goes on to say, so, so our, our pride would not go before a fall. Romans 15. For whatever was written in former days in the Old Testament was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Two, like Paul, we live on the other side of the cross, where Jesus did not abolish the law, but what did he do? He fulfilled the law. In Christ, we follow Christ's commands. We do not live under the law like Moses or David did. We live under Christ's law. We are filled by his spirit who has written, what? The law on our hearts. In all of this, Jesus does not change the law. Rather, rather he clarified it. He, he advanced it to, what it to what it should be found in him. And he paved a way for us into it through his perfect life and his atoning death. Third, R.C. Sproul's ministry concisely states this. This is helpful. Law and gospel are not opposed in all spheres of life but only in justification. And we should seek daily to delight in God's commands. Now, if these three statements don't, they don't convince you, like, that's, that's fine, that's okay. Uh, there's a really excellent resource by uh, Dr. Tom Schreiner. It's called 40 Questions About Christians and Biblical Law. There's this whole series, 40 Questions and Answers about interpreting the Bible and all these things. 40 Questions and Answers About Christians and Biblical Law by Dr. Thomas Schreiner. So in summary of, of meditating and delighting in God's instruction, one scholar writes this, this hiding of God's word in the heart also requires gaining a full understanding of it. This is one of the many reasons we hold our seminars the same morning we gather to hear the preached word. Right? The pastors at Faith Family desire to present the entire counsel of God before you so that you're properly equipped to run the race of life. Next, we have a tree full of life. Much, much can be said of, of trees and their symbolic or metaphorical meaning. Here, here's a brief summary. In Ezekiel, the tree was the symbol of the temple where God dwelt. It was a symbol of paradise in Genesis 2. Later, it was a symbol of God's kingly reign and of the Davidic kings who reigned as God's representatives. In wisdom literature, the tree is a metaphor for wisdom itself in Proverbs 3. The wise person in like, is likened to a tree of life and that his or her speech and activities are life-giving and restorative. 
So notice what verse three does not say. Verse three does not say, like a tree by a river. Look at what three, verse three does say. It does say, like a tree planted by streams of water. Planted is the language of what a, what a farmer or a gardener does, right? Similar language is used in Ecclesiastes 2, where, where Solomon planted all kinds of trees, and he set up pools of water to feed his developing forests. This planted language in Psalm 1 is a planting by the hand of a sovereign gardener. Consider when, when Israel left Egypt. Psalm 80 puts it this way. God brought a vine out of Egypt. He drove out the nations and planted it. He cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea. Psalm 1 and Psalm 80 use that word plant, which can mean either to plant or to transplant. One one scholar notes, all its 10 occurrences in the Old Testament, plant, transplant, they're all metaphorical and all relate either to Israel or the righteous Israelite, where, where God plants where he transplants, it thrives forever. Of equal importance to this imagery of the God-purposed, God-planted tree are these streams of water. Uh, Now, this is not a reference to to a river, uh, but rather it's it's referring to a dug-out irrigation canal for the express purpose of watering the tree. So this is a sovereignly ordained planting and watering. You, Christian, you're not some forgotten willow stuck by a lonely river. (laughs) God didn't have the psalmist write down, the Lord's anointed as a grand oak tree, but but you, you're kind of like a bushy little shrub. No, no. You're like a tree planted by streams of water. You've been divinely appointed to this particular time and place in history, and your call is to abide in the one who's the way, truth, and the life. Here's one author's summary of this imagery. Planted by channels of water, the tree represents the individual, then the water represents the word of God, for as the water makes the tree grow, the word causes the person to grow spiritually. And when you follow the way of our Savior, you will not be able to help but be a giver, not a taker. Like God has first breathed gospel-rich air into our lungs, your words and way of life will will release gospel-rich air air into your home, your neighborhood, your job, your relationships, right? This, this is not a, Psalms is not a checklist for us to go down. It is something for us to live inside of and, and give life to others with. When the continual irrigation of God's word feeds you throughout the day, what God has planted in you will grow into the fruit of the spirit. At the end of verse three, we see that the one who is blessed prospers. When we think of prosper, Our minds turn to to what? To material wealth, at least mine does. But Psalm 1 has already shown us, it's actually already shown us what what prosperity looks like. True prosperity, true wealth, both in this life and in the one to come, has more to do with delighting in God and God's word than than we can even begin to imagine. For the psalmist, you've struck it rich when delighting in the things of God. Charles Spurgeon commented on this word prosperity. He said this, it is not outward prosperity which the Christian most desires and values. It is soul prosperity which he longs for. Our worst things are often our best things. There's a blessing concealed in the righteous man's crosses, losses, and sorrows. Verse four, the wicked are not so, 
but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Now, chaff, chaff is the, the outer husk or shell on, on a wheat kernel or a similar grain. Uh, m- many of the commentaries I read had a, had a similar explanation for chaff. And, and while reading them, I was like, you know, you're a theologian, but I don't know if you're like a theologian farmer. And, and like, I just, I just need to see things happen, uh, right? And so, so what did I do? I, I, I closed my eyes, you know, I bowed my head, and all right, Google, show me. Show me videos of this happening of chaff being driven away by the wind. And, and voila, here, here's a common explanation of chaff. Uh, when, when a grain like wheat is harvested, before the kernels are ground in, into the flour, into flour, it's taken away to get threshed. Uh, that's, that's where we get our eventual word for, for thrash. You hit the grain over and over with the threshing sledge because you want to get down to the valuable part of the wheat, not the invaluable part, the chaff. The valuable part of the wheat is the kernel. So the grain gets thrashed over and over in order to separate the once useful protective shell from the wheat kernel. This outer shell is now useless. It's now empty. It's a flaky shell. It's chaff. It's worthless chaff that needs to be removed from the wheat kernel. So next you can either toss the wheat up in the air and and a breeze is going to blow it away. Or the the video I saw is you you drop it in front of a fan and then the chaff just, it's just blowing away. And the wheat kernels are just dropping into a bucket and the chaff is just fleeing the scene. It is gone, right? And it's, it's just a tiny little fan that this farmer was using. Chaff is nearly weightless, dry, flaky, fruitless, rootless, useless, lacking substance, and unstable. For all, all uh, uh, commentary uh, explanations of this. That, that is to say, brittle chaff, right? It's, it's quite opposite of a tree, a great oak tree. It's quite the opposite it's not even like a, a leaf blowing in the wind, right? It's not even that, that close. It is totally opposite. Trees, trees live and produce. Chaff is dead and counterproductive. So really, what, what are we saying? Oh, well, really, it's, it's quite offensive. <laughs> this, is, this is quite offensive. Uh, it is, as one commentator said, an unsparing conclusion. There's no chaff uh, and tree combination. There, there's, no, there's no third way. They're only the righteous and the unrighteous. And then just, just take a, a moment, look, look at the Bible, look at Psalm 1, visually observe what's happening here. We see the imagery of the righteous tree in verse 3 compared with the imagery of the chaff in verse 4. One is, one is lengthy and significant. One is brief and insignificant. The psalmist wants our imaginations to linger on the result of lingering on God's word. In our mind's eye, we can, we can see, when we read Psalm 1, we can see this. We can see a planted tree thriving, thriving even on a hot summer day. It provides cool shade, fresh fruit by refreshing waters. The wind blows its evergreen leaves, and, and only in the backdrop, for, for a moment, do we notice the chaff billowing up from the threshing floor, scattering in the wind, divided and done. Verse 5. There's no room left to stand with the godly. In modern English, the the most recognizable or or popular form of poetry is poetry that rhymes. Scholars and historians have long noted the concept in uh, biblical Hebrew poetry as thought parallels. These parallel thoughts move next to each other and will either amplify what is being said or repeatedly show what a thing is not. For example, here in verse 5, we see two statements. The wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation, which essentially is, it's telling us the same thing. 
It's synonymous. This is synonymous parallelism. It's a synonymous parallel thought which emphasizes what? The wicked will be prohibited from joining with the righteous. Verse 5 links to verse 4. Think back up to verse 4. Like weightless chaff, the, the lightness of the wicked hold no weight or influence in the judgment in the realm of the righteous. There's parallelism all over the place in the Psalms. Just like the godly want nothing to do with with taking a stand with sinners, the ungodly do not want to stand up with the righteous, nor nor could they. But like chaff in the wind, they perish or or wander off. Verse 6, unlike the godless, God does not forget his own. Verse, verse 5 is an example of poetically similar thought. There's the synonyms there. Verse 6 is an example of a poetically dissimilar thought. Okay, It's God knows, emphasis on knows, the way of the godly. That is opposite or antithetical to the perishing way of the wicked. Knows and perish. And, and this, is, this is both comforting and, and it is heartbreaking. It, it comforts us imperfect very imperfect, but faithful saints. With a tender care and a watchful eye, God knows our way. He sees our trials. He sees our temptations. And and he will discipline us, not to punish us, but because he loves us. And he will set us back on his way, the straight and narrow. This is also, it's just heartbreaking. When When you meditate on Psalm 6, it is heartbreaking. It breaks our heart for the lost. The wicked here seem to be left to their own devices with no watchful, no help, no helping eye. Even even their good deeds are are worthless. They're not even mentioned. There's no point in mentioning them. They have only themselves to rely on as a guide in the vast expanse and seemingly unlimited pathways of life. They, They are alone. They are lost. They need the hope of the gospel. The righteous can, can walk into the Psalter. We are blessed because we are blessed in Christ. But the unrighteous, they, they have no use for it. They have no use for it. It's, it's gold for the righteous, but mere chaff for the wicked. There is no third way. Okay, some final application. Non-Christian, a final note, and then Christians, we will have a final note. Non-Christian. Our prayer for you is that Psalm 1 would would introduce a crisis in your soul. That that you would see your only way out of this is to ask God for his forgiveness. That's that's our prayer. The Psalms repeatedly declare God to be king over over all of his creation. Not not just like the the Christian creation uh, or religious creation. No, he is king over and over again in the Psalms. He is the king of kings. He's king over the nations. We're going to see this in depth in, in Psalm 2. The Psalms are also not unaware of God's gracious forgiveness. Psalm 80, it invites not just, not just sinful people, but former enemies of God into the fold, into fellowship. And the early church did the same. As 1 John says, we proclaim Christ to you so that you may have fellowship with us. So today, if you recognize that you are an enemy of God, then there is hope for you in Jesus. If you know you are a mocker of the things of God and the gospel, there is hope for you, and you are welcome here. Non-Christian, 
Do not walk away today without knowing this. God, God made a way for you to be blessed in him by sending his son. His son takes our punishment. His son gives us his blessing. The Bible says it this way. And because of God, you who are in Christ Jesus, you in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So, so consider, consider Jesus who came near to dwell with us sinners, but never took our advice or joined in our godless ways. Look at him who refused all sinful pleasures for the greater pleasure of company with his father. Look at the one who was mocked, but never mocked back. Cry out to him. Humbly ask him to change your heart. Christian, a final note. Uh, go, go find a tree. <laughs> uh, Eugene Peterson wrote this. We all suppose that we could pray or pray better if we were in the right place. We come to the prayer book of the Bible to get training in prayer. And the first directive in Psalm 1 is this. Go find yourself a tree. Sit down in front of it. Look at it long and thoughtfully. The transplanted tree is the image that focuses our distracted will. The same will that is, that is ever restlessly looking for and trying out the right conditions for prayer. The tree claims our attention and it says, put down your roots here. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.